Hi, my name is Nathan Cook, and you're listening to HDR Brews, in other words, High Degree Researchers Drinking Coffee. This small show is designed for academics to put their research interests in the spotlight. Please sit, learn, and enjoy a cuppa while we do too. Hello and welcome to HDR Brews, in other words, High Degree Researchers Drinking Coffee. This episode's researcher is Susanna Eyre. And cup of coffee is brought to you actually in Queensland again, which is good. Uh, I'm down on the Gold Coast just having just a, a plain latte at home. Uh, and Susanna is up in Brisbane, not too far away from me, uh, at QUT today. And what are you drinking uh, today, Susanna? Yes, thanks, Nathan. I am drinking a cold brew tea, which I, to be honest, I for- almost forgot about. So it's still brewing, but um, it's in here. It's got the cup. It's ready to go. It's a... Peach, a white peach spritz flavour. Oh, yum. It's a bit different. Yeah. Um, unpopular opinion, I'm not a big fan of coffee, and I also don't really drink tea either, so I was scraping the barrel a little bit, but yeah. it's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, great, and it ma- matches your, your nice pink shirt that you've got on. You know, peach is, is the, the colour of <laughs> the tea. <laughs> and the so, yeah, and is that, when you say ice, have you just put a bunch of ice in there, or, sorry, cold brew, or is it like like a mechanism in the the jar that you've got to make it like brew oh no nothing too fancy it's just one of those tea bags which i've popped in with copper water yeah so. cool i was actually giving some recommendations the other day for someone who you know they like their, their sugary drinks and i was like you know just put two tea bags in a um you know like an ice latte cup or whatever and with no milk or milk and it's like having a like a soft drink because it's like still the sweet flavor but um it's just a tea yeah. instead of like Pepsi Max or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good alternative. Yeah. So first off today, uh, Susanna, what is your area of research? So broadly speaking, I guess my area of research is around feeding in early childhood. And within that, my PhD focuses on the role of siblings at mealtimes. But I guess when I'm referring to feeding, uh, what I'm talking about are the different ways that parents can actually influence what or how much their kids are eating. And so, for example, we might look at whether parents are pressuring their kids to eat, saying things like, you know, the classic, you can't leave the table until you've finished eating your dinner. Or, um, you know, can you please just have three more mouthfuls of this? Or it could be around whether parents are using food as a reward or or a bribe or even a threat to get their kids to do something. I always think of the example of the fact that we we often give kids a lollipop if they get a needle or, you know, a a chocolate if they're good and don't cause a fuss at the shops. Um, So things like that. It could also be around whether parents are involving their kids in food preparation or sitting down and actually role modelling eating behaviours at the mealtimes. So it's referring to all these different types of interactions, I guess, that go on whilst kids are eating. And it also can encompass the overall structure of mealtimes as well. So it might be around the timing and routine of the mealtimes or the setting. So, you know, is it in front of the TV? Is it at the table? What's the general atmosphere like? Are there distractions? They're essentially the broad focus of what my research is all about. And then, as I mentioned within my PhD, my specific focus is on the role of siblings. So often times when we are researching feeding, we'll focus on a parent and the child and look at, you know, what's going on between them. Um, But, you know, in Australia and 
other countries as well, it is very common to grow up with a sibling. So a lot of those interactions, they're not occurring in isolation, they're occurring within the context of that broader family. So my, my work is quite exploratory and it's really just looking at what role and influence does that sibling have on the mealtime. Yeah, fantastic. And there's just going through all those, you know, different feeding practices from the family. There's so many different, I guess, environments or opportunities throughout the day where a kid's going to be um, eating, you know, like they'll be at home, you know, at, you know, before school or on the weekend, and then they're going to be at school with their lunch bucks or their tuck shop money. And then they're going to be, you know, you might get picked up and go to sport or whatever. Like I'm, I used to remember finishing swimming training and we'd always get lollies, like, um, you yeah. know, from the coach and, and, and mum would say, well, you know, have these ones, don't, not these ones. Or, um, uh, like you talk about the bribing, like Friday nights was like, you know, McDonald's or something like that. And, um, so it's really like, I think something that people can relate to. It must be like so interesting to probably even speak to your colleagues and say, you know, what happened in your family home, you know, or did you have a brother or sister or, um, like I have two older sisters, um, mm-hmm. One is a stepsister and one is um, like my half-sister. And I grew up with Nicole, my half-sister, but she was 10 years older. So mm. like a lot of the time she was either not at home or, you know, was so separate. Like, um, and so I think perhaps she did have an influence on me. You know, you don't, you don't know. And that's, I guess, what you're trying to find out. Yeah, you're right. In the fact that these like eating occasions, meal times, things like that, they're, they're constantly happening. And you talk to a lot of parents and they often feel as though all they do is to feed their kids. You know, mm. you've obviously got breakfast, lunch and dinner and then snacks in between every day, seven days a week. So it's, it's a big job for parents and it's something that's so ingrained into our lives. And, and I, I agree, I think a lot of people can relate, even if they don't have kids, you know, you do have your own childhood and sometimes you can remember particular things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting topic, I think. And what was the angle to, I guess, choose the sibling route? Like there's obviously so many different questions that you could ask, um, which is kind of good, you know, post PhD, but, um, (laughs) why, why siblings? It's a good question. And I think for me, the idea of my PhD came from my supervisor. So I had a meeting with her originally and she's done lots of work in the feeding space and she's, you know, interviewed and surveyed so many parents around how they feed their kids. And because we often focus on one child, what she sort of noticed anecdotally was that she'd be asking a parent about, you know, how do you feed Bob? And it is very natural for parents to then draw comparisons between their other kids. They might say, you know, oh, Bob's a great eater. He'll eat anything I put on his plate. Um, Totally easy. But then Joe, on the other hand, absolute nightmare. So I think it it was anecdotally through the work that she was doing. And so it sort of sparked that thought in her mind around, well, are we actually capturing the whole picture if we're just focusing on one child in the family? Um, you know, what else is going on within that food environment that we could explore? And and so I was pretty interested in the concept of feeding and, and I jumped on that project. And, you know, I also grew up with two siblings I've got an older brother and an older sister so I'm the youngest of three I know that family meal times were something that were really ingrained in our household um and I guess doing that research I have become more appreciative 
of the, that fact and realised how much of a privilege that is that my parents, you know, had the time and, and the resources and the intentions of, of setting up those family meal times. But I guess that's another reason, like I, I've grown up with those memories myself around eating at the table um, and we still do to this day mm. when we're together. That's nice. And so I guess the, the way I think about this in terms of methods, I'm like, is Susanna in the back corner of the kitchen, <laughs> you know, at dinner time watching what happens? Is that is that what you're doing or is it a lot different to that? Close to that. I am not standing there <laughs> um, in the corner, but I, well, for my first study, what I did is I sent out um, GoPro cameras to families. Oh, cool. So, yeah, I got them to record meal times in their home, just as normal as they, they could be. Um, and then I went and picked up the cameras and, and reviewed the footage. So it was really like being a fly on the wall in people's houses and, and seeing what it's like behind closed doors. Um, but yeah, we thought we'd, we'd steer away from that method of me actually going in and standing there just because it can be a little bit awkward for people and a bit daunting as well. <laughs> yeah, sitting there with the checklist, like, yep, she's done yeah. this, you know, she's cut the carrots right or whatever, you know, that's funny. <laughs> I have done that before though in a research assistant job, but in childcare centres I've gone around and sat in the corner and watched educators and how they're interacting with their kids um, during real times. So it's definitely a method that people use. And so the, is it the sibling interaction or is it the, how the parent works with having more than one child? A bit of both. Mm. So, yes. So I guess going in, my aim was pretty broad and I really just wanted to look at, you know, what do mealtimes look like in families with siblings um, and specifically between the ages of one and five years. And so in that I was looking at, you know, some of the different influences that kids have on each other. And so sometimes that was looking at those very direct interactions between the siblings themselves. Um, and sometimes that was more indirect influences. So as you mentioned, it's, it's sort of more like, you know, when you've got child number two coming along, obviously there's a change in family size and structure and um, dynamics and that in itself can impact how parents feed. So, so it was looking at some of those indirect influences as well. Yeah, yeah. So many different ways to I just try and try and impact, you know, the, the feeding time. So, um, what stage of you are at your PhD are you at the moment? Yeah, so it sounds like I'm at a similar stage that you are. Mm. Um, so I'm, I am coming towards the end of my third year actually. So I've got technically March is when my end of uh, third year was but I'll be getting a, a six-month extension so I'm expecting by August I'll be finished my PhD but yeah so I'm, I'm getting through it I've, I've got two phases of my project and I'm working through the second phase of that at the moment yeah cool uh, yeah so I'm mine three-year anniversary I call it is um in <laughs> March as well and then we have oh, a yeah we had a um Monash I think Monash is three years, three months, and then you, they gave us an extra three months um, with um, COVID. If you were in a cert, if you were enrolled in a certain time, so I'll I'll be I think we'll be you know submitting quite close uh, t together, which which would be ex exciting for, for both of us. Yeah. So, and That's so when exciting. you say the second phase, um, can I ask you what you know what those phases were, if that's alright? Yeah, absolutely. So. I guess my, my overall project used an exploratory sequential mixed methods design. So essentially 
What that means is I had a qualitative phase to begin with, and then I used the findings from that to inform what um, the quantitative phase was about. So um, the first phase was the qualitative. So as I mentioned before, I did those mealtime observations. I sent cameras out, um, got parents to record mealtimes. And then as part of that as well, I interviewed the parents to find out a little bit more about just their experiences with feeding um, in the context of siblings. So that was the first phase and it was a grounded theory study that I did. And some of the outcomes of that I used to design um, a survey, which makes up my quantitative phase. So there's two aims to my survey. The first aim of that was to get parents to actually complete two questionnaires. One questionnaire was all about how parents approach feeding with each individual kid and then what each individual um, child's eating behaviours were like as well. So my aim there was really to look at, you know, do parents adapt their feeding practices between siblings or do they use the same feeding practices across the board? But if they do adapt them, what factors are they adapting those practices in response to? And my focus there will be on those different eating behaviours. But I think that one will provide us an indication of, you know, when we're talking to parents about how they feed one of their kids, are we getting the whole picture? And then with that as well, because siblings are related, they also provide a bit of a natural experimental control because, you know, it means we can control for things that are common between them. So things like at least half of their genetic makeup in the case of siblings, or if it's identical twins, that's, you know, 100% of their genetic makeup. Um, as well as things like their mum's socioeconomic status or ethnicity, things like that. So it provides us with more confidence in terms of looking at those different relationships between the variables. So that's study one. Mm. And then study two has really built on some of the work that I did in the qualitative phase. So um, in that qualitative phase, one of the things we looked at was different ways that parents actually feed their kids that involve siblings so I guess to provide you with some examples of what that looked like you know sometimes parents leveraged on the competitive nature of siblings so siblings are naturally pretty competitive so you know saying things like who's going to be the first to finish dinner tonight or Bob ate three beans do you reckon you could beat that so yeah really drawing on those competitive natures to, to motivate kids to eat um, a lot of parents also talked about the fact that siblings are like sponges. Often younger kids will watch what their older siblings are doing and then really observe and, and learn and then imitate that behaviour. So parents played on that a fair bit too, saying things like, you know, Sophie really likes her broccoli tonight. If you try yours, you might like yours too. So things like that. Um, so all these different types of practices, I guess, and what we've done now on a quantitative level is just gone, you know, can we actually measure them and see how often parents might be using them um, down the track, you know, what outcomes might that have in relation to the kids. Um, but yeah, so it's like, a, a, I guess, a preliminary validation of, of a questionnaire to measure those practices. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've got so many, like, examples, you know, running through my head of, like, you know, do parents know that, all right, you know, because obviously we're biased dietitians are like, you know, what, you know, Barry's two years older than, than Jan, so she, he needs a bit more food or 
like, but then the kid would say, well, why does Barry get more, you know? And it's like, well, he's older, you know, like that type of example or even, you know, um, <laughs> Barry's giving me the shits in the back of the car, so let's give him a chocolate, <laughs> but you're behaving well, so you don't get one. And it's like, <laughs> or something like that. And it's like how how then the siblings will, you know, not not competitive, but maybe even get upset at each other. Like, well, why does that, why do they get that? Um but I like that sponge example. That's really that's really cool and and, and um, a nice example of you know how they interact. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. I think the examples you provided are what we definitely saw in meal times. You know, I think it's pretty natural for people to compare themselves to others, and kids are definitely not exempt from that. So we did see you know tantrums from you know. Joe got a slightly bigger banana than I did or, you know, Harriet got three grapes and I got two. Um, <laughs> so things like that. So it does impact how they're behaving at mealtimes and, and sometimes even how they express their food preferences. So on the basis of those comparisons, sometimes kids can start to differentiate themselves from each other. And we saw that. I recall one parent talking about how, you know, her younger child loves pears and as a result of that, her older child absolutely refuses pears and will only eat apples because <laughs> um, doesn't want to be like a younger brother. Um, so it's quite interesting, yeah. Some very nuanced um, interactions and dynamics going on. Is there a um, um, like an age gap or age sample that you took on or you just took on any parents with kids at home? We did have an age range. So in that first study, we looked at kids aged one to five years and we did find um particularly with the one-year-olds because i guess they're not quite at that developmental stage as some of the older kids in that age range there were fewer interactions between the siblings so we actually went to then narrow that down in the survey to two to five-year-olds um so that we could capture a little bit more of that so ages and age gaps do play i think quite a big role as well Mm. It'd be interesting, like, some sort of, um, like, longitudinal, like, study of looking at, like, how these, like, practices that you're looking at influence, like, their relationship with food when they're older, like, because I can't remember what I was doing at five, you know, like, eating-wise, <laughs> and how that's influenced me now, what was on the plate, but that would be cool yeah. to, like, a, to see the relationship there. Absolutely, I'd love to do that. There's a, there's a big cohort, for example, over in the Netherlands called Generation R, and they've tracked, um, people from you know before they were born up into adulthood and there's some research around them for example looking at you know parents use of pressure to eat when kids are young and they've shown you know five years down the track that can lead to more fussy eating and emotional eating in kids so so potentially yeah these practices as well may have an effect like that Mm. Um, so I'd be very intrigued to look at it longitudinally that's kind of a good, I guess, segue to before. I'd love to hear about your experience, you know, from undergrad to where, to how you got to where you are now. But what are you thinking, you know, August time, post PhD, what's kind of next? That's a great question. And it's something that's in the back of my head right now because I really <laughs> need to get onto it. Um, look, there are so many avenues within the research that I've done yeah. that I think would be really interesting to explore. Um, you know, what you've just mentioned there, things like with this questionnaire that I'm developing with my survey, you know, if potentially that does work um, in the sample, could we look at how we can apply in research in the future? Um, 
you know, I'd love to compare twins versus non-twins. So there's lots of different avenues, I suppose, that I'd love to be able to research. But in terms of where I'm heading, I guess I'm going to try to be as open as possible. Mm. You know, I've always said that I've come into the PhD originally just wanting to train up to be a researcher as opposed to trying to become an expert in whatever niche field that I ended up doing. Um, And so I'd love to stay within the realm of kids, but if that's not the case, then I'm also open to other opportunities as well. That's a really good perspective, I think, coming into the PhD because, like, you don't know what you're going to learn and you'll learn so much, but you also now understand, I guess, you know, the basic or more so advanced concepts of research and you can take that skill to other cohorts or, or to other types of projects and, like, just because you did kids or, you know, obviously that's your interest area, doesn't mean you can't go do something in adults or, you know, do do a lab-based study, you know, because you're got um you got the skills and you understand how to you know conduct you know adequate research um so that's a really good perspective i think that's cool yeah it takes off the pressure sometimes too when you you don't need to try and feel like you know everything about the topic um but also as well i think it's sort of guided my project a little bit in terms of i really wanted to do mixed methods so that i got a taste of qual and quant work you know i tried to do coursework throughout as well to um learn different methods so yeah i think it's sort of guided how i've approached the phd in a way as well now how did you get here susanna so uh, i met susanna at uh, dietitians australia for those listening in august last year and there was lots and lots of phd students there and everyone would have a different i guess um pathway to how they got into or landed in a phd program uh could you please tell me how you went from you know early years university to how you got to where you are sitting today? Sure. Um, so I guess starting right back from the beginning, when I first enrolled into uni, I actually enrolled into a Bachelor of Architecture, of all things. Um, so very different to where I've ended up. But all throughout my um, you know, school life, that's what I thought my calling was. I really thought I'd be an architect. And I lasted about three weeks before I realised maybe not for me and so I had a year off where I was working and I guess just navigating what my options were and then I decided to do the Bachelor of Nutrition Science at QUT to eventually transfer into Nutrition and Dietetics and thinking back to why I did that I think it was probably um, more so around just liking food which is a bit of a um, unoriginal answer but that's how I ended up doing the undergrad and then I'm sure it's different in all different unis, but doing the degree as an honours, there is obviously that research component. And for us, that was all in the final year as we did our prac placements. Um, And so we got given a range of options for the projects that were available to us. And two of those projects were actually based in Vietnam. Oh, wow. And... It seems pretty funny looking back at it now when we've just gone through this period where no one can travel and everyone's just wanted to travel. But at the time, no one put their hand up. <laughs> and I think it's probably because that year is pretty chaotic as is. Like, I know for me, I was off to Longreach, central Queensland, to do a rural clinical placement. You know, you're here, there and everywhere. It's overwhelming as is. So no one put their hand up, but these projects needed to be filled. So the names of whoever students happen to be eligible for whatever reasons, they went into a hat and they were picked out of the hat. 
and of course my name was picked out. So I guess it really happened by chance in a way because the project that was based in Vietnam was around feeding. Oh, wow. In early childhood. Um, but I ended up loving the project. Um, I was based in Ho Chi Minh City. So I was there for about four weeks where I was just doing data collection. So I was based in this little, um, it was called the Nutrition Center. It was like a GP clinic. And I felt completely out of my depth because, you know, I hadn't done much travel before, let alone research. But it was, it was really nice because I had this team of nutrition students who were there and they could speak both English and Vietnamese. And so they were helping me with all of that data collection. So we got through it, came back, wrote it all up. And in the end, I found it really rewarding. And I think it's, it's those times where you feel like you're completely out of your depth that you, you do learn the most. Mm. Um, so I completed that degree and then I had a year where I worked in a couple of jobs. So I just got a taste of a few different things. Um, so for example, I was in a GP clinic in Brisbane working with patients. I was also with Queensland Childcare Services as predominantly as a community dietitian. So I was, I was going around to different centres and doing nutrition workshops with kindergarten kids kept me on my toes that one (laughs) and then as I mentioned briefly before I was also doing a little bit of RA work where I was again in childcare centres sitting down in the corner and watching (laughs) the educators um, interact with the kids during meal times and collecting that data so I guess there was a little bit of a central theme within all of those roles which was still around kids Um, and I knew that was the area I started to really enjoy Um, and so as a provisional APD, I had the mentor, as you do at the time, mm-hmm. who was based at QT, and she was the one that put me in touch with my supervisor, who then I had a meeting with, and, and then we went from there. That's fantastic. There's so many, um, I guess, touches of points where you've been involved with, with children and, and perhaps even parents, and it's like it's like you said, the chance of getting picked out of the hat and sent on a plane overseas, for play, <laughs> not for honours. And then, you know, I guess it's all, like you said, built up to this... Um, you know, eventuation of doing a PhD in this area, which is, which is great. That's really that's really interesting story, and it's so different to you know other ones that I've heard, like doing placement or sorry honors in Vietnam is fantastic. What a what a great experience, and you know it's something that I would imagine not many. So it was only one of you that went over, or it was actually it worked out well in the end because it was one of my really good friends that went over. She was the second person to get picked out of the hat. Um, we were based in different cities though, so we weren't together, yeah. um, but at least we could fly there and fly back together. Yeah, cool. That's great. Yeah. Now, I guess, you know, you're working with, I'm, I'm assuming, Susanna, you're not, that you're not a mum? No, not sure. No. How do you go working with, like, do you like children, like, and as well then, you know, working with parents, I've understood from, like, my partner who does quality um psychology with um parents and, and and little ones that it's quite hard to you know um interact with some people who may have different thoughts from what you're suggesting have you experienced that um both with the kids or either with the parents as well um i guess i guess my experience more so has been that parents are a cohort who are super keen um you know to even participate in research and and to learn um particularly obviously with firstborn kids because there is the novelty there and and you want to do everything right 
Um, so I found it's, it's quite a nice group to work with, but I've always gone in with the fact that, you know, I'm not a parent, so I don't know what it's like. Um, and perhaps that could be a limitation around researching in this area because I don't have that lived experience. But it also means that I try as much as possible to just be open and listen to, to their concerns and what's driving and motivating them to do what they do and, and what constraints as well they're facing. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and also, like, you know, you don't go to, you know, for example, like you go to the GP to see a doctor, you go to a dietitian, you go to a researcher to do, to do research. So and I think that's kind of what um, Abby's told me is like, well, they're coming to me as a psychologist to do this. So regardless if I'm telling them something they don't want to hear, it's what they're here for type of thing, you know? Like, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And now I'm not sure if you're allowed to, are you allowed, allowed to, I guess, disclose, you know, obviously where you're working is the, the Woolworth Centre for, for children. And are you, Children's Health Research, sorry, are you... Like, that's a fantastic partnership to have. Um, and is that was that part of the original idea or you've been successful in getting some funding or...? Well, the, the centre itself, um, so, yeah, so they're funded by Woolworths. So um, Woolworths aren't involved in the actual design or conduct of the research. We, mm. we are funded by them. So we have different streams. Um, mm. There's a, a clinical stream, which is more hospital-based. There's also a science stream which is um, it's based over at QIMR looking more sort of at like microorganisms in the lab but then there's the the public health stream as well which is where I sit and we've got a team here of you know postdocs and PhD students and the like so I was lucky enough for my project to sort of slip in there but there are some core projects that um, are funded by the, the Woolworths grant but for me my project my funding comes through qt yeah so okay cool that's really cool to know because i know that you know the further like coming to a phd i had no idea how any of it worked i was just like all right i just want to solve the problem of food waste and let's see what happens but yeah the more you spend time in an academic environment or an industry environment you realize that like there's pockets of money and there's people who can do things and it's like Usually, you can kind of grab a bit of everything, put it together, and then all of a sudden you've got a project. If you've got the right people, um, which is, you know, the resources, then you've got, you know, perhaps a pocket of funding. It's like you can really do a lot with, you know, two or three brains on one thing or even one person's full-time energy into something like a PhD. So um, it kind of helps. I think what you saw, talked about before about understanding, you know, research in general as a as a like an accolade that comes out of doing the PhD is like how to, I guess, run research or f be able to find opportunities to support research as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really nice working in like a close-knit team as well um, of very, all very talented people who, who are really good to learn off um, in that respect too. And sometimes, you know, we, we do RA work on other projects going on in the centre. So it's nice to see what else is, is going on and how those um, projects can work as well outside of PhD. Mm. And even outside dietetics, you know, like you, you can get your, once you've got your research hat on, you can you know, expand into so many different areas and get your name on papers or presentations or, or whatever. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Now, so I've already asked you about what's next. You know, we've, we've kind of discussed what you're currently working on in terms of your, your two phases of, of the, you're at the second phase of that um, quantitative project. So are you, have you started writing up or you're about to, you know, lock yourself away and 
and <laughs> and get a, a typewriter. Uh, a bit of that will be happening, yes. Too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I'm just, I'm almost finished my um, analysis of the two studies. So I've half written the two manuscripts, but yeah, a little bit more to go on mm. them and before I can wrap it up. And you're doing by publication? Yes, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, great way to go. Um, Are you doing the same? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. It's a um, copy, paste, you know, change a few words for, for some of the... the, the, the uh, papers and then um, you know do a, a, a plus and minus at each end of that and then and do the discussion and hopefully well I haven't I haven't I'm kind of a very similar stage I've got two papers writing up still doing analysis or collection on one and so it's um like you said before before we got on it you know January's gone very fast it's a bit uh, it's like oh you're not nine months anymore it's now eight you know yeah. <laughs> the clock's ticking all steam ahead now, I'd like you to tell us, Susanna, about one of your favourite papers of yours um, that you've written and then also something uh, for, for the listeners to read, and that can be a book or an article or even a, um, a, a blog or even a Twitter post, um, if, you're, if you care to share. Yeah, sure. So um, the paper of mine that I was keen to share is not one that's actually published yet. Mm. Um, touch wood, I think it's almost published. I'm checking on it every day. Honestly, yeah. But... It's, it is the paper that was based on my qualitative study that I mentioned. So it was around the mealtime observations and the interviews and using grounded theory to analyse all of that. And I guess I, I pick it because it is the key paper of my PhD, but also because I think it went through a lot of like hurdles to actually get it done. So in the beginning... For example, we had a lot of delays with getting ethics approval. And I think that was related to the fact that, you know, those mealtime observations are quite a novel method and, and there are, you know, risks involved in getting parents to actually record within um, the context of their own home. So parents in that situation are really like co-researchers because they're in control mm. of what data is getting collected. You know, they need to be over the protocol and the ethics considerations. You know, we need consent from everybody. Um, we need to be clear in what we can and can't capture. So the ethics application itself took a couple of iterations and a pretty long time to get there in the end. But, you know, all in all, I think it needed to go through that process and it made the design of the study better. Um, so that was the first delay. And then obviously, like many things, it was also delayed by COVID lockdowns um, because obviously I was, I was travelling to participant homes to deliver and pick up those cameras. And, you know, during lockdowns, I obviously couldn't do that. And then we had the Queensland floods um, back in early last year. So again, like my house started flooding at that oh. point. The roads were all closed. Um, I couldn't get to participant houses. So again, that threw another spanner in the works because we had to sort of hold off before we could continue that. And then you'd think, you know, a global pandemic and a natural disaster would be enough. But then even at the um, start of this year or the end of last year, um, QUT experienced a cybersecurity incident. Oh. Um, and I'm not sure if you saw that. That was on the news very briefly, but... You know, it meant that as a precaution, all our systems, our IT systems were all shut down. We couldn't access any files. Um, and that was the time when I needed to respond to reviewer feedback for the paper. So it's, it's just gone through like all these little hurdles. Um, but I think that makes me prouder of actually getting it done in the end. And I think it's 
like it's taught me good lessons around, you know, you just need to be flexible and patient and um, just kind to yourself as well around, you know, life happens and things get in the way and, you know, sometimes the PhD is not the be all and all. Um, but, you know, you still get there in the end. Mm. And what's the title of it, if you're allowed to share? So the title of it is I'm Having Jelly Because You've Been Bad. Um, cool. And, <laughs> and I remember the end of the title. It's a grounded theory study of Australian um, families with siblings or something like that. Um, but, yeah, so that quote comes straight from the mouth of a very chuffed three-year-old boy who screamed that across the table at one of the meal times when his twin brother was he just hurled a fork over the table so he wasn't getting dessert but um he was so he was pretty happy about that so i think it was just a kind of funny but um also i think a nice quote that sort of encapsulated what the research was all about which was looking at those different dynamics between siblings at meal times yeah that's fantastic you know a lot of my research is quite you know um you know hospital based so it's a bit more clinical but it's it's i think part of good researchers if you have a creative title it's going to get like you know traction and and um you know interest and when people see that they go you know they read more than just an abstract and they, that comes across their email and they go oh what is this about you know like <laughs> and, strange, yeah. yeah yeah and like especially you know granted theory is a very tough method um I, I haven't i've only read little bits about it but um it's something that requires a lot of you know input and and reflection and things like that so you know i just want to congratulate you that's great work that's really cool Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think I think it does help that the topic can be pretty fun. Um, mm. You know, you can get all sorts of quotes from kids and it's often quite entertaining when you're transcribing <laughs> the videos. But, you know, for a while there I was spending, because I noticed in at least two videos from two separate families that kids were talking about um, magic asparagus. And I was like, I don't know if you know what, <laughs> what magic asparagus is. No. I didn't either. I'm sure it's common knowledge for parents, but... Um, I went down this big rabbit hole of just trying to work out what that was because I was like, it must be a thing. And I did end up on um, a YouTube episode of Bluey where Bluey has a magic asparagus and he's turning all his friends into different animals. So it's like, yeah, it's it's an entertaining topic, I think, and can be a bit of fun. But I spent way too long trying to work out what that was. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing though, to see how that influences, you know, because Bluey is like a – and it came out of Griffith, like on the Gold Coast. Like it's a – it's a huge phenomenon now. Like that was like, it's overseas too and all this stuff. Like it's not, um, and how that influences them and their, you know, what they see and then what they, because like even when you said that, I'm like, oh, I bet you it's a magic wand in the back of my head. And, you know, yeah. that's, you know, um, so that's really cool to see how that also, you know, I guess can infiltrate the, the mealtime, you know, like what they see on TV or what they hear at school and, and that type of stuff as well. Yeah, absolutely. And what about something you've read recently or um, would like to suggest? Yeah, I was thinking about this one for a while. Um, I guess it's a, it's a bit um, different, but what I would suggest is a book that I have, mm. which is called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. So it's got absolutely nothing to do with my PhD topic or even doing a PhD in general, but it's about food. Um, and I just think it's a really nice book. It's um, by Samin Nosrat who is, she's a chef over in America amongst a number of other things. But she talks about salt, fat, acid, heat as like the fundamental pillars of cooking. 
um, and she sort of takes you through each pillar and explains what it is and, you know, how to sort of master it when you are making food to get the best flavour and texture or whatever. And then the second half of the book is is just a range of recipes, but it's got really nice, like, watercolour illustrations and it just sort of takes me back to food science days from, you know, early undergrad years. Mm. Um, and I think it's just a, it's a nice book. If, if you like cooking, I would recommend it. And it's also been recently turned into, like, a docuseries in Netflix, which I haven't watched yet, but I think that might be pretty cool. Yeah, cool. Uh, I think I can, I can really resonate with you in terms of looking back at food science because when you say that, it's like, I was like, what is this subject going to be about, right? But then we're in the kitchen, like, trying diff- all the oils and the textures and then, like, cooking gluten-free versus plain pasta and, like, then how that those recommendations to someone in a private practice setting influences their ability to eat it if it, they don't like the taste or um, all those different things. It's... um. And so when you, like, I'm a, not, not a bad cook, but I don't, I prefer to microwave everything if I, <laughs> but um, with, with time these days, but so fat, would obviously like your oils and, and your butter and things like that, your salt, that's pretty obvious, like your flavouring, um, acid, is that like, because you, you've obviously read the book, is it like yeah, fruit and so, citrus and stuff or? Yeah, so that would be more so like your lemons mm. or your, your vinegars and that sort of thing. And what was the last one? Heat. Heat, yeah, yeah, so cool. Just in terms of, yeah, temperature, heat. Yeah. And, and the actual cooking process. Yeah, cool. That's great. Thank you. Um, now, I don't think I've seen you have one sip of your tea, unfortunately. No. No, <laughs> so it'd be nice and cold now. Um, oh, cool cup. I've got the same colour water bottle. That's good. Oh, do you? Yeah, you yeah. It's, yeah. It's nice. It's um, They're a really cool company, like... It's, oh, I uh, love them. I've got a water bottle too, actually. Yeah, they do so much stuff, like, they, like eskies, everything. Like it's all, it's a, it's a cool. They're a big dog company now. But how did their, um, how did it taste? It's pretty nice. It's, um, pretty refreshing. I'm gonna say, I don't mind it. I'd give it out of ten, probably a six point eight. Oh, okay, cool. I've never had, a, I've never had a, a decimal, so that's good. That's cool. Oh. That's a, that's a <laughs> no new rookie, one. No rookie scores. Yeah, that's no first for the first for the show. That's great. Um, well, I hope you get to enjoy the rest of it. You know, I've, I've kind of ta- you've taken um, you, I've taken your hour of tea enjoyment to an hour, an hour of conversation. Um, <laughs> How's your drink? Yeah, good. I reckon I smashed it. I love. I do love my. Uh, I would say popular opinion of having a coffee um, at home. Um, I'd give it a nine. It was pretty good. Uh, we got like a little. Um, espresso machine at home and I just put just hot water milk pretty standard but it's um it gets the job done and saves five bucks so that's good um yeah yeah now I will hold you back just for two minutes to have a chat afterwards but thank you so much for your time uh this morning Suzanne it's been great to learn a bit more about this and thanks for sharing your experiences and you know good luck with the next nine months in in getting this 80,000 word document uh to to some people to read how good (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me on. It's been fun chatting with you and good luck to yourself as well. Great. Thank you. To finish off, as always, thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it as this is a passion of mine. Don't forget to leave a review. It helps other people find the show. And please share this episode on your social media or tell a friend to continue spreading the message of the Cooks community.
You can sign up to our weekly email by clicking the link in the description of this episode and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook at The Cooks Community. Until next time, remember to breathe.